You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. My name is Cole Kirby. I have the honor of serving here at Sojourn Montrose as a deacon and parish leader. Um, so I would highly encourage you to, to follow Reed's encouragement to, to get involved with the neighborhood parish as the new year begins. And I will shamelessly plug and invite you to the Hazard Street Parish. We meet at my house, which is legitimately upstairs. And we meet on Wednesday nights at 7. We would love to have you and, and be a part of our family. Uh, but really, connect in any one of those ways. We, would, we really do believe that the church is a people to belong to rather than an event to, an attend, to attend. And so, so please join with us in that. Also, as Reed said, we're finishing up the Advent season um, and, and the Advent series, and we'll, we'll be in Isaiah, which he read. Uh, but to kind of set it up, um, as, as we celebrate Advent and Christmas, we are often thinking about um, the manger scene and, and the fact that our God became man in the form of a baby, that we might be a redeemed people. And, and that is a beautiful thing to think about and to consider um, in the Christmas season, but we also have the opportunity to consider that that God did not just come once as Jesus to redeem, but that he's coming again to perfect and make things new. And so that is really the mindset that we'll have as we dive into the text. Um, And so with that being said, I'm going to pray primarily for me because I need it. And so if you would join me in that, um, then we'll get started. Lord, we we praise you and worship you um, that you are good, um, that you have seen it fit, to come and save for yourself a people through the man and Lord Jesus. That you saw it fit to come and dwell with us. That we might be given a, a name that is, that is good and, and worth rejoicing in. As Nick prayed earlier, Lord, we rejoice in that. Uh, but we also pray with eager expectation that you would come again. And so as we read the scriptures this morning and as we dive into really the thoughts of the Advent season, uh, would you teach us? Um, Would you use me in spite of all of my imperfections and inabilities? Um, Would you use my mouth that your people might hear the good news and that you would be made glorious? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, um, for, to get started, for those of you who are really type A and note takers, we're going to have three like, key areas or points that will camp out. So if you want to start jotting notes, I understand that's not me, but I understand that it might be you. Um, so the first is a priestly people, shame replaced with honor, and that's going to be the Isaiah 61 text, verses 4 through 7. And then we're going to go to Isaiah 62, verses 1 through 5, for a prophetic voice desolation replaced with delight. And then we will finish with a specific strategy of tireless intercession, which will be verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 62. So shame replaced with honor, desolation replaced with delight, and tireless intercession um, will be kind of where we go this morning. So I'm going to start by by setting up this Isaiah 61 text um, if you go before, in the earlier verses of chapter 61, you'll see that Isaiah's purpose is to address the people of Israel concerning the future year of the Lord's favor. The future year in which, a future season in which God would send a Messiah, an anointed one, a savior king, to make for himself a people for his own possession. 
And in the Christmas season, we celebrate knowing that that has been accomplished in Jesus. But, but that is what Isaiah is talking about. And so let's read through Isaiah 61, verses 4 through 7. It says, They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations. And in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. And so there's this future year of the Lord's favor in which God's people will experience honor and a double portion and everlasting joy in which they'll be called priests and ministers of our God. But to understand that year of the Lord's favor, we, I, I'm convinced we need to go back to, to the creation of all things and to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, God created things and placed man and saw that it was good. And he gave our first father, Adam, a specific role. He was to work and keep the garden. Creation was said to have been good by the God of the universe, and he placed Adam in the garden with the role of keeping it that way. This would involve tasks performed to the end that all of creation, the plants and the animals, the birds of the sky, his wife and future children would experience and see the goodness and glory of our God. This was the first time in which God had a time of favor for his people. He he called the creation good, and he even walked with man in the cool of the day. The favor of the Lord abounded in the garden, but we know this didn't last. Adam rejected his role as a priestly garden keeper, and as he acted in rebellion to God's commandment. And with this rebellion, sin, death, and all manner of devastation entered into the world. We can see this clearly in our lives. I know that as I've checked Twitter the past couple of months, every time I see a tweet from CNN or AP, it's always something that leads me um, to close to tears or to anger or to frustration. Another shooting, another epidemic of disease, another epidemic of famine. We live in, in cities where our current events and our relationships are marred by devastation. What was formerly a beautiful and perfect garden in which rest, worship, and unity with the Creator existed is now a land of ruin, evil, and at best shadows of a former glory. And because of our sin, we as people have been marked by that same devastation and ruin. On our own merit, we're a shameful lot. We're a race that makes disobedience, selfishness, violence, hatred, and lust the motivations for our daily habits. And and before the throne of the triune God, we would be found hiding our faces, weeping and proclaiming our embarrassment and our shame. And this has been true since our first parents, Adam and Eve, hid their naked bodies from God in the garden. As they realized their sin 
and their bodies were exposed, they were embarrassed, ashamed, and condemned. And we are no different. But we get to celebrate that there's good news. There's good news, and and that is that in Jesus, all that Adam lost in the garden has and will be replaced. Everything that was broken has and will be restored. All that was brought into the world, namely death and devastation, has and will be removed. The year of the Lord's favor has come, and it will only increase in glory and in joy. Everything Jesus said and did and accomplished in his life was to the purpose of fulfilling his role as one that would restore creation as the second, the truer, the better Adam. In his teachings, he proclaimed that God was true, that God was good, sovereign, holy, and trustworthy. This is opposed to Adam having believed the serpent's lie that God was a liar and that he could be equaled. In his miracles, he participated in the restoration of creation. He proclaimed that in him there was abundance and plenty rather than lack and despair as he made water into wine at a wedding feast. He proclaimed that in him was life rather than death as he performed miracles of healing the sick, raising the lame, and even raising death to life. In his relationships, he brought selflessness and humility rather than self-service and arrogance. And in his death, he experienced the full weight and the result of our sin as he claimed the sins of his people for his own and was punished for them, both as an earthly criminal and as a spiritual sinner. And then in his resurrection, he showed that all that Adam had brought into the world was not only atoned for and taken care of by him as a sacrificial servant, but has and will be conquered and restored by him as a king and as a creator. With that being said, because of what Jesus has accomplished, those that trust in him as Savior and as Lord are no longer marked with shame. Rather, we are called sons and daughters of God the Father. We are called beloved and holy. We have been clothed in robes of righteousness and given the role of priests. That's what the text says, is that we will be called priests of the Lord. So what does it mean to be a priest? Or as a people, what does it mean for us to be a priesthood? In Exodus 19, the people of Israel are told that if they obeyed the commandments of the law, that God would make them a kingdom of priests. This was, in other words, they would be God's chosen and beloved people to whom and through whom he would reveal his goodness and his glory to all the world. And this is something that at Sojourn, if you've been around for any length of time, you've heard Marshall say, that for all of time, God's purpose has been to have for himself a people for himself, for his possession, to whom and through whom he would reveal himself to the world. And this was the promise to Israel if they obeyed. Later in the Old Testament, we see specific people given the role of priest. These men were washed ceremonially and given special garments. They performed sacrifices on behalf of the people that they might be forgiven. They entered into the holy places so that others could experience reconciliation with God. Now this text in Isaiah prophesies to a time in which all of God's people are called priests. 
we see that this comes to fruition in 1 Peter chapter 2 when Peter writes to the church, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. The people of Israel failed to keep the covenant of law. They failed to keep it, and therefore they failed to become the true kingdom of priests that God promised them they would be. But Jesus fulfilled the law. He gave us priestly garments that he washed and that he earned for us so that we can take part in making him known and join him in the restoration of creation. He performed the true and final sacrifice as he gave up his body and as he committed his spirit to the punishment we deserved. His body and being was the ultimate holy place in which sacrifice should be performed. And upon his death, even the veil which covered the holy places of the temple where the spirit dwelled was torn. Formerly, we were shameful and in darkness. Now we have been given honor, dignity, a double portion, and in love we have been brought into a marvelous light. We perform our role as priests as we take part in seeing God's goodness and his perfection made known to the world around us. We do this both in the physical as we take care of the widow and the orphan as we feed the poor and provide shelter, as we serve our communities and love our neighbors. And we do this in the spiritual as we take part regularly in preaching the gospel and sharing the good news of life in Jesus with those around us as we pray for the sick and for the suffering, as we pray for our family and our friends, and as we participate as a community in right worship to a holy God. We can truly be a holy nation, and we can truly be a kingdom of priests because of Jesus and the identity he has given us and the ultimate, as the ultimate and perfect high priest because he's given us and earned the priestly garments for us. And so with that, shame has been replaced with the honor of this office of priest for the people, his church. And so with that in mind, we'll move to Isaiah 62. We'll move to Isaiah 62, and and it says, verses 1 through 5, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch, the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of our God. No more, church, shall you be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. This passage begins with the speaker committing to preach the good news that that for the sake of God's people, that this Messiah has come or will come and that they will experience a righteousness and a salvation that will be seen by all others. 
And with that in mind, we're going to jump ahead to verses 3 and 4, and that's where we're probably going to dig in our feet for the majority of our time. Verse 3 claims that God's people will be a crown of beauty and a royal diadem to God. This is pretty staggering language to describe how God feels about a people that began their history with rebellion and have continued in rebellion every generation since. We could even look at the most influential leaders in the history of God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, and see that they are all desperately flawed. Our first father, Adam, introduced all of creation to sin and death. Noah got off of the ark of his salvation after the flood and immediately got drunk and performed shameful acts. Abraham gave his wife as a prisoner. Jacob was a deceiver. Moses murdered. And then he gave the law to a people that would prefer worshiping statues to the God that saved them from slavery. This list really could go on and on and on. Yet it is promised that these same people will one day be a crown of beauty in the hand of our God. They'll be a a precious treasure, a symbol of glory, honored and famous. Precious things, however, must have value, and honored things must have something that makes them honorable. And, And as people, we can make concession and still call something precious and valuable. We can find gold that's been tarnished and still find value in it. We can find world leaders or philanthropists and in in spite of their personal flaws, we can find them honorable and, and worthy of acclaim. But the standards of the God Most High must be higher than that. The standard is perfection. And what have God's people done that they would be precious and honorable in his eyes? Verse four goes on to say that these people will go from being called forsaken to being called my delight is in her. Again, the question must be asked, why would a people that have generation after generation forsaken the commandments of God, failed to worship him, and incurred a rap sheet worthy of much punishment, judgment, and wrath be the delight of God? But that question is answered clearly and magnificently in our Lord Jesus Christ. The aforementioned rap sheet was claimed by Jesus in the flesh, and he took on the verdict of guilty. In the fullness of God's wrath towards people and their sin. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And for the purposes of this text, it is exceedingly important to point out that Christ was not only punished so that we don't have to be, but he was forsaken by God so that we could be called by a different name. As he hung on the cross to die, our Lord Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God the Father certainly delighted in God the Son. He has for all of eternity. The proof of this is in Jesus' earthly baptism as the heavens rip open and the voice of the Father comes down and says, Behold my Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father delights in the Son. He finds Him to be glorious and treasured. He finds Him to be King. Yet that we might be given a new identity, that we might no more be rebellious and forsaken, destined for wrath, Jesus was crushed and he gave his identity to us. 
Jesus being forsaken and punished in the body was the only way that our righteousness as God's covenant people might go forth as a burning torch and as brightness to all the nations. This is really the good news of the gospel. This is the good news of the Advent season. We have been given a new name as beloved, as precious, as treasured, and favored children of God based completely on the merit of Jesus. The fact that God became man, that we could know him, is incredible. He humbled himself to be an infant, a boy, a pubescent teenager, and ultimately a lowly teacher. The God that created all things humbled himself to be arrested, mocked, and hung by the very people whom he created, whom he gave food, water, oxygen, and existence. He bore the punishment of the Father for our wicked deeds. And then he rose victoriously over death, which has only defeated all men before him. This happened as a result of his first coming. This happened because a child was born. And and we celebrate the Christmas season because this happened. But he didn't just come once. He's coming again. Over and over and over in his life, Jesus proclaimed of his second coming. And the whole sweep of the New Testament and the scriptures is built upon the promise that he will return to have for himself his people, his church for all of eternity in joy and in perfection. He will be the bridegroom and we, the church, will be the beloved bride as we participate in the eternal wedding feast. This is what we must have in mind as we look at the world around us that is surely full of wickedness and devastation. We see cities that millennia ago were once great and powerful are now buried beneath new cities that have already begun their decay. People plot in malice, envy, and violence all around us, even in our city. Relationships are broken and devastated. Nations war against one another. It's really not hard to see that the world has not experienced the fullness of God's favor, His promised favor. So while it is true that those who are in Christ, meaning the redeemed community who have professed faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, who have put their hope in His merit rather than their own, it is true that we have experienced the identity change from forsaken to adopted, from forsaken to having God delight over us. But the land we live in is still desolate. The promise in the text, however, is that there will be a day when this is no longer the case. Your land shall no more be termed desolate, it says. But it will be called married. And when will this be? In the second advent of our Lord Jesus is when this will be, when he comes back into the world. And at the commencement of the eternal wedding feast, the land will no longer be termed desolate. Here, the promise from the vision that John had of future things in Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water from the spring of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. In this time, church, when the fullness of things promised comes to pass, our land will no more be desolate. Relationships will no more seem hopeless. Disease, addiction, dishonesty, violence, and sadness will no more rule the day. But in that day, the one who is called faithful and true and whose words are likewise faithful and true will make all things new. God's covenant people will continue to be loved, continue to be the delight of God. And as verse 5 says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So in Jesus' first coming, he has given to his people an identity as righteous, as beloved, and as delightful. Our shame has been replaced with the honor of Jesus. Our forsakenness has been replaced with God's delight in Jesus, and therefore for us. And these things have already happened for those that are in Christ. This is something that for those who have faith in Christ as Lord, we already experience. But as we discuss, there are parts of the promise in the Isaiah text that have yet to be fulfilled, that have yet to be realized. The desolation and brokenness of our world will be redeemed, rebuilt, and perfected. But what do we do until that happens? What do we do in the now, in the tension between the coming of the Son and as a baby that he would redeem his people and the coming of the son who is now the king to be perfecting and making all things new. What do we do right now? Verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 62 say that our role as priests is to ceaselessly pray to God and remind him of what he has promised. You who put the Lord in remembrance, it says, take no rest. And give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise on the earth. This Jerusalem that is being referred to is the new Jerusalem that John speaks about in Revelation. We are to pray that the promises of God come to pass, which historically they always have. Marshall has said over and over and over again that the things that God decrees come to pass and he has decreed that the land will one day not be desolate. And that will come to pass. But until it does, we are to pray that it happens. We are to remind God of his promise to do that. We are to ask him that his kingdom comes on earth as it currently is in heaven. Jesus, the Lord of all creation, prayed that it would be so, even though he was going to be the one that would do it. He reminded the Father of this promise as he taught his disciples to pray teaching them to pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Not only are we to ceaselessly pray, but we're to labor to the end that all people will experience the beautiful reality of God's promises. 
Verses 10 through 12 of the same chapter say, Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him, and they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. We are to strive to make these promises known to the people around us. We're to prepare a way for many people to experience the goodness of God's delight for them. Oh, that our neighborhood would see Sojourn Montrose as a place that lifts the signal over the people that their salvation comes. That they can be called a holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And oh, that Houston, Texas would be called sought out in a city not forgotten. Believers, let let us make our lives defined by tireless intercession and prayer deed, and word on behalf of the life that is in Jesus. Let us pray without ceasing that God would fully accomplish the work of redemption and perfection that he has promised us ages ago. Let us base, beg the God the Father based on the merit of Jesus the Son by the power of God the Spirit to call many more people redeemed and to heal our world of desolation. Let us join together with the local church in the work of ministry as a royal priesthood that our neighborhoods and our cities do not miss out on the good news that Jesus has provided all that is needed on their behalf, that they would have life, relationship, peace, and the love of God in glorious reconciliation. And then for those of you who would not call yourself a Christian, for those of you who would struggle to proclaim the faith in that Jesus is Lord, that he's Savior, that he is the God of the universe, and that he is our only hope. I encourage you to consider the things we've read today. I beg of you to consider that the God of the universe in magnificent love for you has made a way for you to experience the fullness of his care for you. Would you consider that trusting the perfection of Jesus, his sacrificial and his substitutionary death, And would you consider trusting his glorious resurrection as your only hope to experience an identity other than that of forsaken? Would you consider believing that the desolation of this world currently will one day be no more as the Lord Jesus returns to make all things new and that by trusting in him, you could be among the multitudes that participate in that glorious wedding feast? as we forever celebrate that God's dwelling place is with man, uninhibited by our current imperfections? Would you consider as we celebrate Christmas that we're, cons- that we're celebrating that God became man to dwell with man in order that man could know God, but would you consider that as we celebrate Christmas, we're also celebrating that God is coming again to dwell with man in the form of Jesus and the things that we experience now that are so dark, that are so sad, that are so hopeless, will one day be restored? Would you consider trusting Jesus as Lord and joining with us as the church to participate in the tireless work of the restoration of creation, of interceding on behalf of our world that God's promises would come to pass? 
I'm going to finish by, by encouraging you with the words that the angels use to encourage the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth. Hear this from Luke 2. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Let's pray. Lord, we worship you that you have brought us good news of great joy that is for all of us. That is not based on our merit or our ability to achieve something or our ability to speak properly or act properly. But, but that even in generations and generations and generations and days and years and months of our rebellion towards you, you came that we might be your people. You were forsaken so that we don't have to be. You were crushed so that we can be raised up. Lord, we praise you for that. Lord, would you, would you stir us to believe that truth? For those of us that are already believers, would you encourage us and make us worship you as a result of that? Would you stir us to intercede, to pray, and to act that all people would experience your goodness? And for those of us who, who struggle to have that faith, Lord, would you gift them with that? Would you gift people in this room by the power of your spirit to believe that Jesus is Lord, that he is hope, that he is salvation? That they do not have to be forsaken on their merit, but they can be found delightful in your eyes on his merit. We praise you, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.